0: Every day, the graduate student writers of astrobytes.org publish summaries of recent developments in astronomy. Then we sit down with recent astrobytes of our choosing and bring them together, sometimes in ways you wouldn't expect. We call it Astro Soundbites. I'm Milena Rice. I'm a fourth-year PhD student in the Yale Astronomy Department, and I study extrasolar planets.
1: I'm Alex Galliano. I'm a third-year graduate student at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, where I study supernovae and the galaxies they came from. And I'm Will Saunders. I'm a third-year PhD candidate at
2: Boston University, where I study planetary atmospheres.
0: You're listening to episode 25, Beyond Astro Soundbites, Great Advisors, Gap Years, and Getting into Grad School. This is a Beyond episode, so we're not actually talking about specific bites today, but we'll link to some related resources in the show notes. Today, we'll be talking about a few points to consider for those of you who may be working towards your graduate school applications. This might include advice, anecdotes, and other thoughts from our own experiences, as well as some outside resources that we've read about or other conversations that we've had with people. It's also our first episode of season two in our second year of production.
1: Yay! Woo-hoo. That means Ooh. we've turned one <laughs> year old. Pretty soon, we might even have our first word. Oh, what do you think it'll be? Uh, Turbulence? Maybe asteroseismology, (laughs) Maybe dust? Dust was my first word, and it'll be my last word, too.
0: (laughs) Those are are some pretty impressive long (laughs) (laughs) words for our one-year-old podcast. (laughs) And Astrobytes also just turned 10.
2: Absolutely. Astrobytes is like our big supportive sibling who's going to teach us to walk.
1: Hashtag wholesome AF. Do I have to say this? (laughs) (laughs)
0: we've got a really fun set of upcoming episodes that we're excited to share with you all this year will has spent the past six months scuba diving in the great barrier reef to get interviews directly from biofluorescent (laughs) coral in situ
2: alex scaled mount everest in nothing but corduroy and sandals to explore the limits of human fashion
1: (laughs) and melena canoed (laughs) through the deepest amazon jungles with a monkey named glees 581 and a stack of exoplanet papers for company.
0: <laughs> but today we have something even more exciting. We'll be talking about a really important and impactful decision for many of you who might be preparing to pursue higher degrees the graduate school application process.
1: Bum, bum, bum.
0: And that's a pretty enormous topic. There's a lot to unpack there. So we're just going to touch upon a couple points that we think would be helpful for applicants at any point in the process, whether it's months before you apply or just a few days before.
1: And as Melina alluded to, some of this advice might actually be fairly general, but we will be specifically focusing on these ideas in the context of applying to programs to do astronomy research.
2: Absolutely. And we're going to start with what I think we all can agree is the one most important thing in shaping your grad school experience. And we all
1: know what that is. That's how much free pizza your department supplies every week, right? <laughs>
0: <laughs> Hot take, New Haven pizza is better than New York's or Chicago's.
1: Uh, doesn't New Haven pizza have mashed potatoes in it? No, you're thinking of New Haven
2: bagels.
0: Is that a thing?
2: Yeah, they're made with mashed potatoes instead of flour
0: oh wait i have no never tried that's not that. a there's thing there's no way okay <laughs> <laughs> no, no. yeah our pizzas have mashed potato and bacon that's like the thing in new haven wow and i am obligated to say that i like new haven pizza but i'm kind of a bread person so i'm actually more of a chicago <laughs> uh, but i'm not allowed to say it because new haven pizza just doesn't have bread i don't get it it's time
2: to move <laughs> <laughs> in all seriousness though I would say it's your advisor that has the most dramatic effect on your experience in grad school. Wouldn't you guys agree?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I would agree with that. Mm-hmm.
2: And the way I see it, there are sort of three ways that people choose advisors in grad school. And not necessarily you're in one category alone, but these are the trends that I've sort of observed and read about. I would say group one is you choose an advisor as you apply to grad school. That is, you choose the place you want to go because of the person you intend to work with. And if you get in, it's because that person took you. Group two is you apply to schools or departments that you're interested in, that does research you're interested in, but you're not committed to one individual person. You might join a certain lab, but you're not locked into it. And then group three is you arrive with no specific advisor in mind or no clear person you want to work with, and you sort of try and you figure some stuff out, but you find your advisor once you're in grad school. My personal experience puts me closer to group three, maybe a little bit of group two, but probably closest to three. Where would you guys say you were in this?
0: I was definitely group one. And okay. half of the places I applied were actually in Europe and the UK. And in there, group one is kind of the only option because you get funded by your advisor. Interesting. And so I think that was a big part of that. But also, my philosophy of applying to grad school was entirely based around the potential advisors.
1: Okay. And I was group two. I had a general sense of who I wanted to work with, but I fully decided once I actually got to the campus. So I think between the three of us, we span the full gambit of uh, potential options here. Absolutely.
2: And I think a lot of the things that I want to share you know, in this segment of the show is general and will apply to all three, even though my personal experience is only sort of one of them. But let's, yeah, let's definitely use all of our different takes to, to enrich this episode. And so I think a good place to start Is what attributes do you want in an advisor? What is the ideal advisor? And I'll start by saying it it depends a lot on what kind of student you are. Because if you're someone that wants a really hands-on advisor, you want someone to get dirty with the code, um, that's what my advisor does all the time. He likes to see my code and help me write it. But some people don't like that. They want to do their own thing and show a product and get advice on the product. So you have to know sort of the way you work before you know what's going to be ideal for you. And I would say, A lot of people will will give you advice. You want a young advisor, someone who's still trying to make a name for themselves. And that may be true for the right student, but for a different student, that person may want an older advisor, more distinguished, more experienced with with broader connections. They both act differently and there's no one answer. But you may have to either explore what you want or explore what's out there before you can know what exactly is going to be the best fit.
1: Yeah, I completely agree. So in undergrad, I had advisors that were more toward the hands-on side and in undergrad that really helped me uh, because i didn't know for sure uh, what i was doing and the learning curve was pretty steep for a lot of the projects that i was getting going on in grad school it was a little bit different for me and so i kind of appreciated that hands-off approach because part of the research process for me is banging my head against a wall for a little bit until Mm -hmm. i can actually figure out what the solution is and where to go from there and that's really valuable to work through on my own
2: that's the part of the scientific method mm.
1: they don't teach you in 10th grade chemistry
2: is you have to bang your head against the wall for a few <laughs> hours every now and, <laughs> and then.
0: <laughs> so yeah. make sure you
1: find a good advisor and a good wall.
0: Yeah. I think it's also interesting because I have sort of gotten the impression that it's pretty common to apply to graduate school sort of based on who does research that you're interested in, which I think is definitely really important to keep in mind and that's something that is very crucial because if you're not working on something that you're passionate about then you're not going to enjoy it as much but at the same time the person that you work with actually really matters a lot and having someone whose style works well with you someone who you get along with and so I honestly I'm not really sure if I would characterize my advisor as (laughs) hands-on or hands-off I feel like he just adapts to every student but I've really appreciated that I appreciate that I think my advisor puts a lot of thought and care into mentorship and really tries to be the best mentor he can be for a given student, which I think has been really great.
1: It's also a tricky balance to strike sometimes because there are advisors out there that you can feel really comfortable with, but who you don't necessarily feel that they push you to grow and to publish papers and to really continue in your research experiences. So I think it's maybe a fine line. So you want to find somebody who yes, you feel very comfortable talking to and sharing things with, but at the same time, they're able to give you constructive feedback and, and maybe continue to help you grow. Absolutely. Those
2: are really important traits. You know, Thanks, guys, for listening to some of those out because that knocks off some of the things I had on my list here of like what are the attributes of an ideal advisor for everybody, right? And these are things are universal. Your advisor should adapt to you, right? Someone who grows as you grow in your PhD program, um, has to be someone you get along with. If, if you're butting heads, it's not going to work. Alex, you said you want an advisor who's helping you move toward publication at an appropriate pace. I mean, you don't want to be pushing out papers every week because they're going to be garbage, um, but you also don't want to be stuck working on one paper for five years because that's not going to be the right progress. Um, some other things that I would say are really important is that the advisor has funding. Maybe you don't need funding in your first year if you can teach, but eventually you're going to want to focus just on research. And if your advisor doesn't have funding, he doesn't have a plan to get funding, you're going to be stuck. Also, an advisor with a good collaborative network, someone who has connections in the field, is going to be really important because as you go on in your PhD, you start to work with more different people. And when you graduate, you want to have a sort of a network of people that you can reach out to for postdocs and and other sort of job opportunities.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I was incredibly fortunate in that uh, my advisor is, it seems, a member of every collaboration within his field. And it's, it's really valuable for me because now I'm a part of tons of different Slack channels, which maybe floods my messaging streams sometimes. But at the same time, I've met so many people outside of just my university and have found that to be a really, really nice part of my grad school experience. Absolutely. Right. That's pivotal to being a grad student. It's also
2: really fun to meet all these different people and work with such intelligent, accomplished people at all
1: different areas of science. Right. And it keeps things exciting. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. I think something that is important to keep in mind is that science, for whatever reason, is sort of like an apprenticeship system Mm. where you are kind of apprenticed by this person and they teach you to be more like them. And so, if there's someone that you really admire, then that you want to be more like, then that's great. And that's sort of what you should strive for. I've seen it's kind of like how people will get dogs and they start looking like their dog <laughs> you know I feel like I've seen that yeah. with advisor relationships <laughs> where it's funny. like they'll start talking like their advisor <laughs> it's really funny yeah,
1: absolutely <laughs> Milana do you feel like you've started to talk like your advisor
0: oh definitely yeah <laughs> I think I've definitely started to also everyone who ever works with my advisor either already was running or like pretty physically active or begins running when they work with my advisor and that was definitely true for me That's <laughs> so funny <laughs> Because he just awesome. he just runs for like, I don't know, 10 miles a day or something. And it's just casual. Whoa. And it's like we all sort of become you become like part of a certain school. <laughs> it's, it's very strange.
2: I think it's really nice that you feel comfortable to sort of discuss these sorts of issues and that you want to. and you, You're accepting that you're going to be a little bit more like him than when you started off I mean, that's that's a good indication if you if you resisted it and fought it and you said, I don't like that. I'm turning into my advisor. Then maybe that'd be a sign of a bad relationship.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I definitely really appreciate my advisor. And I think I, I always look back to my graduate school acceptance process and try to think if I was back in that spot again, would I have chosen the same as I did? And the one thing that makes me still always glad that I picked the place that I did is my advisor. And so I'm very grateful that I ended up at the place that I'm at because of that. And I think that's actually much more important than the place that you're at. So if other aspects of the department might in your mind seem less prestigious. That's not really a thing anymore in grad school. It's really just your advisor and like who they know and who they can connect you with and what ways they can support you to become an independent researcher as opposed to like, oh, I came from XY school that has a big name. I think that actually matters a lot less in grad school than it does for undergrad.
1: Right. In grad school, a place is pr- prestigious if a person working there is prestigious. And and by <laughs> prestigious, it just means they're they're really good at what they do, right? So you look for the individuals that would make good advisors and that are outstanding in their field to take you on.
2: Agreed. Both excellent points. And if you're listening and you're saying, okay, great. So there are a ton of great advisors out there, but like, how do I find the good ones from the bad ones? And how do I not get stuck in the wrong advisor relationship? Well, there are some ways to sort it out first let me tell you one way that's not going to be so helpful department websites and personal websites tend to be the worst and i mean they're fun sometimes and they're goofy but like they just have outdated information and they don't really tell you what you critically need to know i'll tell you what's going to be the best it's going to be the cv of the person that you're interested in working with because they're updated they have to be updated Uh, If they're not updated, well, that's a red flag right off the top. But so long as it's an updated CV, it's going to be useful. And when you read through a CV and if you have a chance to meet um, the prospective advisor, there are three top things that you should take into account. The first is how many papers were published in the last five years by the person and what topics were they published in. I would include in this primarily first author papers, but co-authorships are important too.
0: I would actually... Interject that. I'm not sure I agree with that. I think it's more important how many papers they're second or third author on, because that means their students are publishing. Because I, I think a lot of advisors kind of stop writing a lot of first author papers once they become professors and they really focus on their students.
2: I don't in my experience I haven't found that, but that's an interesting perspective. Maybe at a certain stage in career the number of papers falls off.
1: I think it's got to be some combination of the number of first author papers that both the advisor and the current students that they have are putting out on that topic, because that kind of combines yeah. the metrics.
0: I think that's true.
2: Those are good points as well. I mean, yeah. all professors have to publish a certain number of papers, um, otherwise they, they're they not fulfilling their you know job requirement, and it's not going to reflect well on their review process in the university. So if they're really not publishing ever, that that is somewhat... Uh, you know, unusual, uh, unless they're, you know, extremely distinguished or an emeritus professor. If they're a regular professor, I wouldn't, I'd be surprised if they published zero papers in the last five years.
0: I guess that's fair. Five years is kind of a long time.
2: (laughs) But it also, you know, beyond the, the number, not to say that more is better, but to say it gives you a sense of what's going on in this person's life right now. Because if they're cranking out two, three papers, first author papers a year, they may be hustling to get tenured. Um, So this may be a more junior professors getting the publications up. But regardless, the publications, first author, second author, third author, and beyond, tell you what they're actually working on. So where the department website will be updated, you know, 8, 12 years ago, this will be the latest work going on. So you may have thought this person was into something that you wanted, but it turns out uh, uh, he shifted gears a few years ago and is now doing something completely different. Right. Um, and the second thing, that was all number one, number two <laughs> is has this professor won grants in the last five years? Usually these are listed on the CV. If they're NSF or NASA grants, you can actually go to the website and just search for who won the grants. Um, but is the professor a principal investigator? You know, That's the lead on a grant. Um, or a co-investigator that's like a co-author on a grant sort of a thing. Um, where, you know, See if they, they have money because if they haven't won a grant in the last five years, then they don't have money. Um, Now, it's not a deal breaker, but it's something you should be aware of. And then third is, has the professor advised students who've graduated in the last five years? And maybe what are those students working on? And if your prospective advisor has not graduated any students in the last five years, that's a red flag because this person may be toward the end. Of their career and and you know not interested in taking students anymore or might not be such a great advisor and students leave drop out burn out or something else that you should be aware of before you get started, and so collect this information you know from the CV oftentimes is available from you know an interview or a discussion something informal, and then sort of uh, go through and and think about whether or not the information makes you confident this would be a good advisor.
0: I will say also I think it's really helpful to... Either talk to maybe their current students who would have some insight as to what the advisor is like, um, or just even if you're if you're not sure if you're at the start and you're just trying to figure out where do I even want to apply. Uh, if you know of any graduate students who inspire you, that was actually a big part of me for me of how I decided to apply to certain places was because I saw certain graduate students that I found really inspirational and I wanted to follow in their footsteps. And so I looked up, you know, who did they work with? What made them get to this point where they've become just such an amazing scientist that is a model for what I would like to be in the future. And so that's kind of a vague criterion, but if you see anybody that you think, you know, maybe I want to be a little bit more like this person, then that can be another place to kind of begin, because usually that person doesn't get there themselves. It's pretty tough in science to just succeed all by yourself. You really do need a good mentor.
1: It's also really valuable to find out not just has the advisor graduated students in the past five years, but exactly where those students have ended up. So if you It's early on, obviously, you're applying to grad school, you may not know where you want to go after grad school. But if you already have some sense, see where the students that were previously working with that advisor ended up, and you'll get a little bit of a sense for potentially where you could go, what your career trajectory might look like as well, if you work with that same advisor. Good point. And if you're listening
2: and you're saying, oh,
1: shoot, I may have gotten in with
2: the wrong advisor or applied for the wrong thing, like, what do I do? Nothing is set in stone. You can change advisors. you can try out an advisor, try out a project, and then move on to something else. Um, you're not locked in. Um, so definitely don't feel bad if you're working with someone and it's, and it's not you know meeting all these criteria. That's okay.
0: I will also say just as an extra point, if after your first one or two years after you get your master's, you end up deciding that maybe a program doesn't fit for you. You can consider applying to Europe or Australia or somewhere to finish your PhD, and it's just an extra three years, so you don't have to start from scratch. Um, so I think that's something important to keep in mind. Uh, it doesn't have to always be a U.S. institute, the six-year program.
1: That's a great point. Right. I think the far bigger setback would be to stay in a place with an advisor who's not right for you or in a program that's not right for you, then to to switch.
2: Absolutely. Very
1: good points. Um, from
2: my own personal experience on how I found my advisor, and like I said in the beginning, I was sort of a, a group three. I came into BU excited about the program because of the wide variety of research. And I didn't really know what I wanted to do, so I was excited to sort of experience what was there and figure it out. And I picked some you know, project and advisor to, to start with and see how it worked. And I really liked the advisor, but I really didn't like the project. And it, in fact, took me most of my first year to sort of find my way to the science I wanted to do and the project that excited me. And my, the advisor I had kind of started with was so good as an advisor. He helped me identify the right people. There was a researcher at MIT who would be a good fit as a collaborator to, to work very close with. And, and you know other people as well that he's helped me get in touch with and sort of enrich um, his own group with different sort of experiences. And it's been re- it's been really good for me to have an advisor who doesn't do the exact same work I do, but who brings something to my work and, and whose work I bring something to. And that's what I've been, you know, really excited about is that I, I did latch on to an exceptional advisor.
0: Yeah. I actually I went into grad school with this dream of doing exoplanet atmospheres and that was my goal like that was i was totally set i really wanted to work on that um Mm. and i ended up deciding to go to yale because of the advisor and a big point of where i went back and forth during the process of deciding was that he doesn't do exoplanet atmospheres he's really a dynamicist and atmospheres is just not something that is his main focus he's had students who have worked on it a little bit And so I I actually sort of ended up pivoting fields a little bit where now I work a lot more on dynamics because I wanted to Mm. make sure that I was learning from his expertise and that I was really taking advantage of what he had to offer and what he was able to really provide expert advice on. And so that's that I think has been really great for me, and I think it's helpful to not be too static about your research interests because I was I was g- pretty static going in and I decided that I thought that it would probably be better to be flexible and I would learn a lot more that way.
2: That's a really wonderful point. I appreciate that and I think as I've started my third year, I have a vision of how things might begin to change in my research interests as I get closer to the dissertation and and beyond where I might see myself pivoting because if you look at the most successful professors and others in research, they almost never stay in the same topics they started with. Their dissertation is almost never what they're currently doing. And that sort of got them rolling, and then they they morphed and they changed as as they got older. And that's natural. That's a good thing. So I, I very much appreciate that answer. Alex, you're going to be telling us about your sort of different experience getting into grad school in a later segment of the show. So we will table that for just now. Sounds great.
0: Sorry, Alex's advisor. Maybe we'll hear about you later. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Before we finish and move on to the next segment here, I just want to say in conclusion, um, for all undergrads listening, for grad students listening, you shouldn't feel any shame in not knowing what research you want to do or what you want to do your dissertation on. It's, that's okay. As long as you don't let the uncertainty breed stagnation. So as long as you're working on something, then you will you know, find what you want to do and move forward. And also, if you don't like what you're working on, talk to someone about it and ditch it if you have to. I ditched three projects in my first year that weren't doing it for me, but then I found the run that did do it for me, and I haven't ditched any of them since.
0: Yeah, I think exploration is definitely a really important step and it's not at all a waste of time even if papers don't end up coming out of it because you're still learning from it you're still getting experience in a lot of different topics and it's going to help you moving forward in whatever you end up choosing
1: completely agree even if you don't like something you start to figure out why you don't like that thing and then that helps you turn back onto what you might like doing instead and that's really valuable
0: mm-hmm. yeah
1: okay so we've talked about finding a great advisor Say that I've decided to apply to grad school, I know who I want to work with at that school, and I know that that school would be a great fit for me based on that person or set of people. But how can I convince an admissions committee of that? Melina, do you have any advice?
0: Today, I'll actually be talking about just that, and I'm going to be focusing throughout the section on ways to write and refine a really strong personal statement. So that is really important to get into grad school, but it's also going to be important for probably the rest of your life if you do anything academic, because, or even if you don't do anything academic, because you're going to be applying to things that includes grants, it might include other jobs, and being able to write about yourself and your skill set is really important for that. Absolutely. And I wanted to talk about this because one of my other hats outside of grad school and AstraZone bites is that I also work part-time at Yale's graduate writing lab. So I've been thinking about this a lot over the last few months as I've been helping uh, grad students and postdocs across the university as they've been refining their writing. And uh, that, that includes various types of applications, but personal statements are really common. Um, But before I begin, I just wanted to put out a disclaimer that there isn't a right way to write a personal statement. There are lots of right ways, and everyone has their own style of writing, so whatever works best for you really is the right way for you, but there isn't just one that matches for everybody. This is advice from my perspective, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's quote-unquote correct for absolutely everybody.
1: Right. I've had so many different writing styles in the various versions of personal statements that I've come out with over the years to varying degrees of success. But I think to some extent, it has to be a function of what you're applying to and what your motivation is, and also just who you are as a person.
0: Absolutely. And it's going to vary a lot with the prompt also. (laughs) So I mean, when whenever you have an application, the first thing that's really important to consider is who is your audience and what are they looking for? So in this particular case of grad school, or even if you're applying for, say, the NSF fellowship or another fellowship, you're probably going to be writing for professors in the field, and you're applying for a research program. So they want you to show that you will have potential for such a research program that could include know past experience that you've had or it could include showing that you have persevered through difficulty in the past that you're able to progress and that you have a lot of grit and agency that will allow you to succeed in that program so it can come in a lot of different forms
2: let's say hypothetically you host a really cool astronomy podcast would that be <laughs> something you'd want to share in your personal statement
0: um, so i think that really depends and it depends on the point you're trying to get across because you want to think about What do I want the reader to take away after they've read this statement? What do I want to prioritize and what do I think is the most important for them to think about me? So for this podcast, you might say, oh, well, I am really engaged with the subject and I'm able to, you know, talk about it, hopefully eloquently. I don't know. (laughs) I guess our listeners can tell us. (laughs) Um, And this is something that, you know, I care about so much that I'm devoting extra time outside of my own academic work that is already required. But, you know, I'm taking it this extra step to learn about all these different subfields and to, (laughs) I feel like I'm advertising myself, (laughs) (laughs) but, you know, to learn about topics other than just the one that I'm studying, as well as going really into detail with the one that I'm studying. And so... If you were a host of this podcast, then it would show that, you know, you've been reading academic papers, you can show that you are, that you really prioritize public speaking and that's something that you want to practice and really pull out these skills from that that will help you in graduate school or whatever other application that you have.
1: All right, you're hired. (laughs) Thanks. I'm sorry.
0: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> biased party from the same podcast It's fine <laughs> and so yeah I think it's something really important is just to make sure whatever you say it's very clear why you said it so it's not just oh this is related to astronomy so I'll stick it in like you want to make sure that the admissions committee understands how the skills or experience that you've taken from this will actually help you moving forward and that can come in a lot of different forms In addition to considering who your audience is, you're also going to, and this is a little bit more um, narrowed in, want to personalize your statement to each school that you're applying to because you want to show why that school is a particularly good fit for you. The same way that if you're applying for a job, you would want to show why you are uniquely suited for that particular job. And so this kind of ties into... What Will was saying about choosing an advisor, so if you happen to know who you want to work with, this can be a great spot to highlight why you would be a great fit with that advisor if you've sort of thought about how your work style with them might work nicely, how their research fits in well with your interests, etc. I would recommend listing a couple of possible people because sometimes... I don't know, maybe that advisor might not have funding that year or Hmm. uh, there might be something out of your control and you can reach out to them to ask beforehand, but you could reach out to every single person you're considering (laughs) working with, but it might be a lot of emails. Um, So it it kind of helps to show, you know, there are a couple people you have in mind and that's good for yourself as well, because then if you get there. And you discover, oh, I don't actually work well with this person. Then you have somebody else that you might be able to turn to and work with instead.
1: That also helps communicate that you're a right fit, not just for one individual, but for the whole program as a whole, right? Because a lot of things Mm -hmm. that the committee tries to determine is not just, is this person a really good fit for this one research project, research area, but are they going to contribute to the department? and uh, grow from the department. So making sure that that is holistically a good fit can be communicated by listing several advisors. Because you always need collaborators, even if you only have one primary advisor.
0: Right. And you can have multiple advisors. You don't have to have just one advisor. People get co-advised all the time. So Mm. that's also something to consider. It's a great point. Yeah. And... Another sort of specific thing that you could bring up is whether a school has particular resources or a particular program that you like. Uh, So they might have like in Illinois, they have an enormous amount of high performance computing resources where Alex is. And so that's a really great place to do data science if that's something you're interested in or certain places have different institutes that make it more or less suitable for your particular research interest. So that's definitely something useful to bring in. And then you can also talk about if there's something you like about the structure of the program. So Yale requires that all students try out two different research projects with two different professors before we pick a thesis topic. And I think that has been really helpful for a lot of people because it makes sure that you've done some exploring. It's kind of a required part of our curriculum to do some exploring before we actually pick a thesis. And it also makes it so that you never have to have an awkward conversation where you say, oh, sorry, I don't really want to work with you because you have already been working with two different people. And it's sort of understood that you're not necessarily going to keep working with either individual.
2: I appreciate that. But if you have to have an awkward conversation, just get it over with. You'll be
1: better off for it. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Yeah, no, I agree. If you have to have that conversation, then it's better to not put it off.
1: (laughs) I think a lot of professors understand that that's kind of the name of the game too, Mm. right? People go in and kind of shop around and try and figure out what fits best. And you think something's going to fit and then you go in and maybe it doesn't as well as you thought it would. And so I think a lot of professors are very understanding
0: of that. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, that's definitely true. Um, Yeah. And the last thing while you're writing that you will want to think about is just that you should try to make sure that you're showing rather than telling about your skills. And so it's very easy to say, oh, I'm a hardworking person. I really like astronomy. But if you can show that through something that you've done, maybe you've done research before, maybe you've persevered through some difficulty, that's something really helpful to highlight through experiences. And you can then say you can tell at the end of showing so you can say oh I showed you this experience and now I'm going to tell you why I just told you about that experience Um, but it's really important to have that showing part so that it's not just like I'm a great candidate I love astronomy and there's like nothing behind it that that the reader can see there might actually be something behind it that is there but the reader only sees the personal statement
1: It's also great practice for your research itself to have a hypothesis and then to support it with uh, background evidence, right? So uh, Mm. if you're writing a personal statement, you're writing persuasively and you have to convince someone of something. And when you write a research paper, it's similar in the sense of you did a research project and you're trying to communicate the results and why you feel a conclusion is one way or the other based on all the evidence. So evidence is really important in personal statements just to make sure that people actually believe what you're trying to communicate to them.
0: Yeah, so these are all general ideas for during your writing, but then after you've written the draft, uh, you'll want to definitely spend some time revising. Don't submit a first draft because there are definitely going to be ways that the first draft can be improved, and usually the best ways to improve upon your first draft are asking for feedback from other people. Uh, If you can, maybe current graduate students or maybe peers in undergrad or... Just anybody who might know about your experiences and might be able to speak to what would be helpful to highlight more or maybe downweight a little bit depending on your particular circumstances. For me, when I'm proofreading my own draft, and this is just you looking at your own draft, I think it's really helpful to read one paragraph at a time and return to the prompt in between every paragraph and just think, does this paragraph actually address the prompt and if someone doesn't know me and they're just reading this paragraph, will they understand why this addresses the prompt? And so if it doesn't, then you'll want to make sure that you have adjusted it so it's very clear how it ties in. And so that usually just means like adding a concluding sentence that really makes it very clear what the point was or maybe changing the way that you framed an experience.
2: That's really good advice.
0: Yeah, That that is, I do that every time I read anyone's personal statement, I'll just sort of go back and forth and make sure, you know, it's very clear why everything is in the statement where it is. And yeah, I think that's a really nice way to go back through your own work as well and make sure that you're being as direct as you can be.
2: It's great advice, especially if you're trying to cut down on something that's too long, you can help you see, you know what, this paragraph's actually not that substantive. I can just cut it.
0: Yeah, it's super helpful for cutting because you'll start to see the parts that don't really add on anything that wasn't stated somewhere else, and then mm. you can cut those out. And I think that's pretty much all. This is just sort of a like list of things that I have thought about a lot because I've been reading so many personal statements recently, <laughs> <laughs> um, but hopefully this has been helpful for someone.
2: Melana, maybe you could take this list and just put it up on our website and we could just link to it. Just a quick bullet list of some of the ideas, tips and tricks as you write and review personal statements for whatever it's submitted for.
0: Yeah, I'd be really happy to do that. Um, I have generally thought maybe I should blog at some point many times (laughs) in my life and then I've never done it. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, I'd be happy to type this up.
1: Awesome. Thanks. Great. And I am going to round out the episode by talking about potentially taking a gap year. But before I do that, let's move on to our cosmological astro space sound of the gap year. Are we (laughs) taking a gap before the gap year segment of the show? Yeah, you could call the space sound the gap year of your undergraduate to graduate experience.
0: Mm-hmm. it's wild because this is in between our seasons too so it just Ooh. it like it fits the gap so well
1: Gapception. <laughs> the gap year is really a metaphor for pretty much anything you can imagine <laughs> if you took a gap
2: in a gap year does that mean you briefly went into grad school
1: <laughs> i'm gonna let you all think about that while i play this face <laughs>
0: I guess it's either a gong or a vacuum cleaner in the deep ocean.
1: (laughs) Either a gong or a vacuum cleaner, but they're both in the deep ocean. Yes, either of them is in the ocean. (laughs) What about you, Will? It
2: sounded like one of those whale sounds. You know that whales Uh, call to each other. Yeah,
0: it's it's definitely marine. Definitely, (laughs) yeah, it just has that underwater
2: vibe. I don't know what it is, but (laughs) whatever it is, I played it from
1: a pool. (laughs) Yeah, it could be a regular noise you play underground. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So both wrong, but good guesses. <laughs>
0: <laughs> what if those were right? <laughs> Someday I'm going to bring a sound like that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> this is actually the sonification for the element calcium. Huh. So I created a series of sonifications for different elements based on converting their emission lines to audio frequencies and I presented this uh, at an exhibit in India in November 2017 where I was able to travel to India for a month because I took a gap year so this transitions nicely into my discussion about gap years
2: hold on one second you made this sound
1: I did make this sound yes
2: how did you do it? You give us a quick explanation.
1: I and a collaborator. Yeah. So basically, there's a NIST database online that shows all the major emission lines of different elements. Okay. And so I downloaded all of those uh, and took their frequencies and converted their frequencies to audio frequencies and mm. their intensities to relative volumes. So the awesome. volumes that you're hearing correspond to the intensities of the emission lines. Yes, Molina.
0: How do you scale that? Do you just decide like... This one sounds pretty cool, so we're just going to go with that. Or like, is there some uniform way that these sonifications are usually made?
1: Uh, in terms of how to map to uh, an audio frequency? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's a great question. Uh, to be honest, we shifted it to a range where all of the elements sounded good, sounded relatively nice.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay.
1: But uh, there are lots of other ways to do the sonification. In our case... It was just important to us that the relative tones of the different emission lines within a single element Mm -hmm. were the same, right? And that relative mapping stays the Mm. same, no matter where you map it to.
0: So if it's low pitch, does that mean it has a relatively low frequency relative to other elements?
1: Relative to other lines in that element. And relative to other elements as well, right? Right. So, yeah, yeah, so we mapped it to the same absolute range for all of the elements. Exactly. So if you hear a lot of high pitch notes in the element, then that means you have a lot of blues and purple end of the emission spectrum Mm -hmm. relative to other elements.
0: Okay, very cool.
1: So what would you say is the most
2: whale-like element in terms of (laughs) 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 sound?
1: Hmm. I don't know if it's the most whale-like, but the one that I love is Hydrogen. And that's because it seems like there's, it almost creates a triad where there's like a little chord going on because the dominant emission lines are spread out pretty evenly uh, Mm -hmm. throughout the uh, spectrum. So if I play Hydrogen. Yeah, go for it. That's beautiful. Hmm. Whereas the heavier elements are all kind of blended together because there are lots of different emission lines. So for something like oxygen. (laughs) It sounds a lot uglier. That is a
0: gong that is not underwater. (laughs) (laughs) That is at the top of a mountain. (laughs) Wow.
1: Wow. Is there a place online that we can go and listen to all these? I created a website with a colleague of mine called uh, Sounds of the Spectrum where we have a lot of these sonifications, so I can link that in the show notes.
2: Awesome. Amazing. And you said you spent a month in India presenting this stuff?
1: I did, yeah. So we created a museum exhibit in a science museum for the festival.
0: Wow. That's wonderful.
1: And it was very fun. It was super hard. We had to do all the electrical work ourselves, so that was the (laughs) first time I've ever wired a a set of lights.
2: (laughs) Oh, my gosh. All right, let's get into it. Tell us about your gap here. It sounds really amazing already.
1: Yeah, let's do it. So, say I've chosen some potential advisors based on Will's advice, and I've convinced the admissions committee that I'm the right choice for that program thanks to Malena's advice, how do I decide if I want to go straight there from undergrad or defer for a year? Let's talk about why you might want to take a gap year, which is a conversation that's near and dear to my heart because, as I mentioned, I took a gap year. For my gap year, I spent a year as a post-bac researcher at Los Alamos National Laboratory in sunny New Mexico. And I'll talk about my experience a bit more uh, in a little, but first, let's go over a few of the reasons why you might want to take a gap year. And Will and Melina, of course, feel free to jump into this at any time. The first reason is burnout. This is pretty obvious, but undergrad (laughs) is exhausting, and grad school could be even more demanding of your time and energy. Taking a year to recharge gets significantly harder once you're in grad school and even further on in your career if you decide to stay in academia. So taking a year to just breathe, do some of the things that you really enjoy doing for undergrad or maybe explore some hobbies further uh, is really valuable. Next, it's really useful to be able to sample different potential research areas. Are you unsure of where you want to specialize in grad school? If you are, maybe you've listed a couple options in your statement of purpose when applying, but you won't really know what you like or what you don't like until you give them a shout to begin with. And so having A relatively low stress way to sample a couple different areas and learn the skill sets that you would like to gain in grad school uh, is very valuable.
0: Yeah, I really want to echo that because once you're in a PhD program, you're sort of on this clock if you want to end up going into academia where after your PhD, you're supposed to, in the traditional route, go to postdocs and then faculty after that. And if you really take a break at any point in that, it's doable. It's definitely not impossible. And I know people who have done this successfully, uh, but it's hard. It's not so easy to take a break later on and then jump back in. And so right after undergrad is actually maybe one of the best times that you can do this. And if anything, it might actually really help your career because you'll have a chance to explore different topics. You'll have more time to do more research before you actually start on that timeline. Um, So that's something that I've sort of looked back and I've thought, oh, wow, you know, I really kind of wish that I had thought more about doing a gap year because it's not something I really considered at the time. But everyone I know who's done a gap year really loved it and had such great things to say.
2: That's a great point, Milena. And as much as we recognize the schedule, you know, this sort of timeline really does exist. It also brings me some anxiety to think about that and think like, oh, in this number of years, I have to be in that stage. Mm And, you know, I also think, how many people do I know who went away from that? And you you said, you know, people who have left and come back or people who have, you know, taken longer in in one area than another. So I think that there is this outward pressure of the timeline, but we should do our best not to make it pressure on ourselves because it can be detrimental.
0: Yeah, it's tough because... If you see one path as like the traditional path and you see so many people succeed on it, then it's really hard to convince yourself, oh, it's okay to deviate from that. That's right. It it definitely is. And again, I know people who have gone on to very impressive professorship positions after having these paths that deviate from the norm. Yeah, I guess I just want to emphasize that. This gap year in undergrad is actually like one of the most straightforward ways to do that. And it's actually a way that could be good for both you and sort of reducing that burnout and it can also help your career. So well said something to really strongly consider.
1: Exactly. Yeah, I just want to reflect the point that both Will and Melena have said earlier, which is that if at any point in your grad school career, you find that your advisor is not right for you. A project's not right for you. Your research area is not right for you. It's totally okay to switch. People do it all the time. However, a gap year can just be a low stress way to explore some of those research areas, some potential advisors maybe, maybe where you want to go to grad school uh, in a way that can help you hit the ground running once you actually get there.
0: So Alex, as someone who's actually done a gap year, what, what kinds of skills do you think you got out of it or what, what do you think you got from your experience?
1: Yeah, very great question. Thank you for asking. In grad school, the whole focus is on you becoming an independent researcher. And that's a massive shift from how it is in undergrad, where it's kind of expected that you're starting to take the reins, but you're still exploring different research areas. And so there's a, there's very much the mentor-mentee aspect to it. So there are a lot of skills that are expected of you in grad school, and these can be both soft skills and hard skills. So if you're picking up a research field that you had nothing to do with in undergrad, there may be specific analysis tools that you'll need to pick up along the way. So, for example, as an undergrad in a non-astronomy field, I was shocked at how frequent Monte Carlo methods are used in astronomy. Mm -hmm. That really came as a surprise to me, and it took me a lot of uh, times reading about it and actually coding up my own Monte Carlo methods before I really intuitively understood how they worked.
0: But statistics was a really big part of your undergrad curriculum, right? Did you not have such an emphasis on Bayesian statistics like we seem to have in astronomy?
1: Yeah, I took a class on Bayesian statistics, but it was very much not the focus of my undergraduate education, which was interesting. Mm -hmm. And so that's just an example of a hard skill you might need in grad school. Of course, there are also soft skills, right? Like leadership, adaptability, teamwork, and balance, those are all tools that you'll need along the way, and there are tons of different ways that you can develop those in a gap year setting. And many of those ways aren't actually in any kind of research setting at all. So I found that I was able to achieve a balance that I was really, really happy with in my gap year, where I would work nine to five. It was a research lab, so you do research in kind of a semi-academic setting, but... You still go home at the end of the day. You have your time uh, to yourself to do with what you will. So I read a lot. I cooked a lot. And I studied for the physics GRE a lot because that was the thing we did back then. Oh, fun. <laughs> um, but yeah, I found that the balance was was really nice. And when I went into grad school, I did so knowing what kind of balance I wanted for my life.
0: Right.
2: That's really wonderful. I I think about all the skills that I've learned in grad school. And if I had some of these skills, or maybe some additional skills coming in, I would have been able to move a little bit faster in in my early year.
0: Right? Yeah, taking that time to transition, especially learning how to cook for (laughs) myself and take time for myself. That was something that I sort of, so I didn't really do that in undergrad. And it was kind of a shock when i had all of this time to decide what to do with it uh in grad school where you know you don't you aren't handed a specific schedule and ideally you don't have enough work that you have to work the entire day uh which was unfortunately the case for me in undergrad and so it was just amazing that i was able to cook and do other things Yeah. So for those undergrads who are really stressed out out there, I do believe that it does get better.
1: (laughs) Well, and that's such a good point that in undergrad, a lot of your schedule is determined by other people where you have many courses and you have meetings and you have clubs and all these things. And of course, you can still join clubs in grad school, but at the same time, a lot of your time is just free time to do your research. And so you have to kind of learn the schedule that works best for you. You have to implement your own structure or flexibility, depending on what works. So All of those things are things that you learn about yourself over time. And during COVID, this really comes to the fore. I think I have
2: more free time than I ever have. I'm sure you guys are the same because we're not socializing, sadly. We're not interacting with our department in a a real material way. Um, I mean, I'm still doing plenty of research. I'm still able to get my coursework done and whatnot, but I have a lot of free time. So I I've been able to fill it with some work and and some more leisure activities, some hobbies and things that if I were say an undergrad, I wouldn't have had those you know things. I wouldn't be as as well versed in how to spend my free time because it was just so structured, you know, between the social life and classes and, and exams and so on. Right. Yeah, that's a really good point.
0: For the first time in my entire life, I've been exercising every day. Wow, good nice. for you! Pretty excited about that. <laughs>
2: For the first time in my entire life, I'm exercising once a week. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I think I saw a tweet or something recently about how the people this far into the uh, quarantine are either coming out with six-pack abs or having gained a significant amount of weight. And I feel like I kind of fluctuate between the two. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've been taking a lot of walks cuz I don't know what else to do with myself
2: some of the time, but That's fair. Um hard exercise, I've only really gotten into during the pandemic. I was really not doing any exercise before, so I'm happy that I'm doing once a week.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's been it's been interesting seeing that my health has actually been better this year than it's ever been in my life, and I think that's just because I've been actually exercising and taking the time to take care of myself because there is so little structure to my schedule.
2: Well, you know your advisor rubbed off on you, right? He said everyone in his group ends up running, so
0: <laughs> That's true. it just hit you during the pandemic. But are they running
1: towards something, or are they running away from something?
0: <laughs> you could be in between.
2: <laughs> next next episode, you record, you're going to be telling us that you're training for a marathon.
0: <laughs> yeah, we'll see about that. <laughs> Maybe a half marathon first.
1: <laughs> so so we went over a couple of different reasons why you w- might want to take a gap year. Of course there are many many others and in the end only you can decide the path that's right for you.
0: Yeah, and I think especially Absolutely. in your senior year of undergrad it can be kind of difficult to consider designing unconventional paths just if like everyone around you is applying to grad school or there might be some peer pressure and I think it's really cool first of all that Alex you decided to do one and I think it's something that more people should really seriously consider because it's such a great opportunity. Thank
1: you. Yeah, I appreciate that. I really enjoyed it.
2: So Alex, what did you actually do research-wise during your uh, gap year?
1: I was a post as I mentioned, which means I got paid to do research full-time, and it ended up being the perfect fit for me. At Los Alamos, there are seminars every day, every few days, from visiting scientists in diverse fields, and I didn't have to worry about homework, midterms, anything like that. I could really just focus on getting up to speed on the research. I worked nine to five in a team of astrophysicists writing code to add chemistry to large scale cosmological simulations. So we were trying to learn about the molecular history of the early universe. Wow. Uh, Yeah. And I I learned a ton from the set of projects that I worked on there and made some really strong connections. And actually my advisors at Los Alamos ended up writing some of my letters of recommendation for grad school because I hadn't applied before I took the gap year. So I think that really helped me get into some of the programs that I wanted. I bet.
0: Do you still work on that? Did it help you to figure out what kind of work you wanted to do later on?
1: Absolutely. So I I do still uh, work on projects related to that on the side. However, I will say that after running simulations for a year, I decided that I really wanted to get my hands on some observational data again. Which led me to both the advisor and the set of projects that I'm leading now in grad school for my thesis and really enjoying.
2: Nice. Well, how do you get, well, I'll ask it this way How did you get your position and how might others try to get a similar
1: position? Great question. I will answer the second part of that question first. How might other people secure a post back like the one I had? There are professional organizations like. AAS and APS and they have job registers where in addition to posting about postdoc and faculty positions they'll also advertise some postbac positions. So keep a look out for those positions. In addition, there are astronomy oriented organizations like for example NASA, Aura, Space Telescopes, National Labs in my case, and uh, specific observatories that also regularly advertise positions. And finally, universities often have bridge programs where they allow recently graduated students to conduct longer term research like the one that I did. And I'll link to a lot of these resources in the show notes, but I would say the best way to get started looking around, seeing what options are available, is just to jump on those websites.
0: So, how did you get your position? Was it one of those?
1: It was not one of those. Uh, <laughs> in my case, I had done a summer internship at Los Alamos, and at the time, My plans for after the internship fell through and I talked it out with my advisor and he said basically that there was a year long post back position and that I should apply to it and he would write me a letter of recommendation for it. So his letter helped me land the job essentially. And because I had already made the strong connections in the research, I was able to onboard without much difficulty.
0: I just want to say, I don't think that's actually that uncommon, because I know at least one person who did this at NASA Goddard as well, who just had a summer internship and just kept going. Uh, so that's something you can consider if you had an internship, seeing if there is a position available to continue for the following year.
1: Yeah, and this actually brings me to my final point, uh, which is that a good rule of thumb is that if you see an REU program or an internship advertised, there's probably a mechanism for doing a bac like position there as well. And so I would take advantage of your network all you can. If you've done an RU or an internship before and you want to do something similar, email those people, ask if they know of any positions matching your interests or if you can work with them again for a longer period of time. Look for friends who have done cool internships and have them point you to specific research groups. And I know it's easier said than done, but don't be afraid to email people, even if you don't know exactly what positions are available or if you haven't met them in person, because It really only takes one person being on your side to help you secure that job.
0: Yeah. That's great advice. Absolutely. All right. Well, this is where we would normally have one-sentence summaries, but I think because of the nature of this episode, maybe it would make more sense to give a piece of advice or some major takeaway to your past self based on what we've just discussed. So Alex, could you start us off?
1: There's nothing wrong with an unconventional career path. And in some cases, it can be exactly what you need to become more independent, explore your passions, and hit the ground running in grad school. What about you, Will?
2: Alex, you said it earlier, and I'll reiterate it. Only you know what's right for you. It's great to solicit advice, and you should weigh it appropriately, but in the end, it's your decision because it's your future. Nice. Milena, what do you think?
0: I'd say shoot for the stars, because if you miss, then maybe you'll land on the moon. Or a planet, because that's how orbits work, or nothing, but that's also fine because you don't get any of the shots that you don't take. Um, So yeah, I guess like sort of what I'm trying to say is don't take yourself out of the game before you've tried. Try out lots of different opportunities, and you'll be able to figure out what your passions are. That's great advice.
2: I would add a corollary to that, which is that when you fail, and you will fail, uh, don't despair because there will be other opportunities and there will be ways for you to succeed in the future
0: yeah i agree absolutely all right well that concludes episode 25 beyond astro soundbites great advisors gap years and getting into grad school for some helpful resources that we have referred to throughout this episode check out the links in the show notes And if you want to hear more of our spectacular episodes, check out all of them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and SoundCloud. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to keep your ears to the cosmos.